Today's Bible lesson comes from Luke 7. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I have come into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my, on my head, on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has, not, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So good to see you all and all these young faces amongst us today. I forgot to say this last week. It's the first time I got to preach with many of you not wearing your masks. So I get to actually see your smiles. As I begin today, let me indulge me for a little bit and allow me to recall some potential nightmares for you. It's not something that we enjoyed. We would put it off as much as possible and put it in as to throw something together at the very last minute, just to get the job done. What am I talking about? It's writing your school papers. You remember those? Okay. When you're writing a paper, where do you focus all of your time and attention? It's in the content, in the middle of the page. 
You're thinking about your thesis and your outline and your, con your uh, conclusion, explanation and your conclusion. And of course, hitting the almighty word count. That's what's most important to you. And when you get the paper back, you just want to see what's on the top of the paper, right? What grade did you get? Because you just want to move on from that nightmare and on to the next one. But how do we get the most out of the papers? Is those who look beyond the grade and beyond the content on the middle of the page, but those marks in the margins. Those who look at the margins, because that's where the good teachers will help note how you can improve your paper. The margins are where we discover the parts where we didn't realize were as important at, as we thought at the time of writing. Today's text comes from Luke chapter 7, and it reminds us of God's work in the margins, the margins of our world. And we just, not just of a writing assignment, but the margins of our world. We discover in this chapter the application of what Jesus was teaching about in the previous chapter when he talked about the Beatitudes and what it meant to live in God's love and not in judgment. People come to Jesus expecting him to work in what is centered in their lives, what they pay attention to. But his actions here in this chapter reveal that God is often at work in the margins of life. So how can we pay attention to God's work in the margins of our lives and in the unexpected places in our lives? So we're going to talk about this in three movements, margins, needs, and love. Margins, needs, and love. You know, when I grew up in grade school, Lunch and recess games often involve picking teams. I don't know if you guys still do this. When you play a game, you have to pick teams. Kids, do you still do this at school? Yes? No? Or has it been banned? Maybe you don't even know what that is anymore. See, in my days, this process involved two people being captains, right? And they would go on to pick who would be, they would like to be on their teams. And this was an exercise of public affirmation if you were athletic if you were popular, or it'd be an exercise, a brutal exercise of public shame if you were none of those things, right? Okay, you don't have to say amen to that, but thank you for doing them. This clear exercise clearly sorted who was in and who was out. And although we only read from Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 36 onwards, if you scan back in your Bibles, children, you can open it up to Luke chapter 7, and you look at earlier in this text, there's a number of different scenes. And we find that Luke, throughout his entire gospel, is running a commentary on who's in and who's out, who's centered and who's on the margins. Luke is showing how Jesus turns everything on its head. God is, in fact, at work in the lives of those in the margins. We see in the first part, there's a guy named Centurion. And this is an example of how God works in the margins of faith and of ethnicity. The Centurion was a Roman official. He was in charge of a hundred soldiers that would keep things in line for the Roman Empire. For many Jews, this man represented uh, one who is outside of the faith and outside of the uh, Jewish people, and they represent, he represented the oppressors and empire who were occupying their land. Yet Jesus says of him, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. Amongst all of God's people and all of throughout history, Jesus says, I haven't found someone with faith like this. In the faith of the centurion, those who are considered out were actually, oh, those who are considered in 
could not compare to this man who was considered out. Then if you move on to the next section, in verse 11 and forward, there's this text about a wood widow who loses her son, and it's the middle of a funeral procession. We see that Jesus is not only at work in the margins of faith and ethnicity, but also faith, uh, of socio, margins of socioeconomic class. You see, for a widow to lose her son in the ancient Near East would be devastating financially. She'd already lost her husband, and now her son would have been the one who supported her. And without that, she would have no ability to, uh, to take care of herself. She would have to rely on the charity of her neighbors and of the village just to survive. But in healing her son, Jesus not only raises her son back to life, but he also restores her dignity and livelihood. Margins of faith, ethnicity, socioeconomic class, but we also see margins of social acceptance. We see how God might be at work even in the margins of social acceptance. You see, Jesus in this scene that we read today, that Ben read for us today, he crosses many social, violates many social faux pas. He breaches Jewish custom and law in this scene with the widow first, when he interrupts a funeral procession in the middle of it. Can you imagine being, you know, when you drive in, you see a funeral procession in the city, it's like the hearse and the limos, and then you have a whole line of cars with the orange tags to show that they're part of a funeral. Imagine if you just cut in and you just stop the whole procession, you open up the back of the funeral hearse, and you pull out the coffin. That's what Jesus basically does here. And not only does, does he do that, he opens the coffin and he touches the body. Both actions would have rendered Jesus, at the time, to become ceremonially unclean. According to Levitical law in, in, in Numbers, touching the buyer, the buyer is the, the platform that the corpse is laid upon, would have made him ceremonially unclean for one day. And then he goes and touches the body, which would make him ceremonially unclean for another, a whole week. That means he'd have to go through all his ritual purification. He had to separate himself from the whole community. But he just, this does not bother him at all. He's more concerned with something important than moral standing and social standing before his community. And then we fast forward to the scene that Ben read for us in this meal at Simon the Pharisee's house. He lets a woman of questionable character, who's na not named and is only known as a sinner in the community, and he lets, him lets her wash his feet with her tears and with her let-down hair. All of these actions would cause the crowd observing to gasp at the supposed prophet and teacher of the Jewish faith. Jesus shows us how God is often at work in the margins. See, every one of those encounters happens outside of a synagogue, outside of a worship service, at the home of one who is considered a Gentile oppressor. It happens in the middle of a funeral procession. It happens in a community meal. The question for us is, might our expectations of where we want to see God work be too limited? We might expect to see God at work within the confines of a church building or a worship service or the gathering of our small groups or in our individual worship and prayer practices. How might we open ourselves up to attend to God's working in the margins of our lives? Think about your time 
and your attention? Where do you put all of that in, during the week? It's often with the people that are in your community. Your people. People of the same education or socioeconomic class. Same skin tones. Same people who are acceptable to you socially and morally. These are your centers. That's where you focus all of your attention. But what margins might we, be, what, might, what, might we need to attend to more? Because maybe we'll find God there more often than we expect. You know, one of the best ways that we can do to attend to God's work is to be in places where the needs are the greatest. See, Jesus met the needs of a stranger whose servant was sick. He met the financial and survival needs of a widow whose son had just died. He meets the need of the sinful woman to experience God's love and forgiveness and acceptance. And they all had sincere needs of survival and of health. But Simon also has a need. Take a look at him. What's his need? You find that he's not just hosting this meal because he's being hospitable and generous. He also has a need, but it's a different kind of need. He has a need to suss out Jesus to see where Jesus lies in the scale of Jewish respectability. He's thinking, oh, this guy, people say this guy's a prophet, this guy's a teacher, but his disciples break the Sabbath. And he hangs around with all these people that good Jewish people don't hang around with. Consider this, this woman. He doesn't seem to have a problem with what she's doing with his feet. You see, Simon, he's on the inside. He's got status. He's got social capital. He's got the means to host a community meal. But he's so focused on himself and what he wants that he can't see the presence and love of God sitting across the table from him in the face of Jesus. Simon has a need, but it's a need focused on him, measuring himself and the expression of his faith compared to those around him. I wonder, could there be just a little bit of Simon in all of us? You know, Simon focuses on his self-righteousness and on justifying why he's a good person, but that led him to miss out on the entire point of practicing his faith, which is to live a life of worship and of service to the living God that he said that he worshipped. How do we know this? Take a look at verses 44 to 46. Jesus points out that Simon is not doing something that this woman is doing. He's so preoccupied with to getting a read on Jesus on, and on whether Jesus meets his expectations of what he thinks God should be doing that he has missed the very character and action of God at work right in front of his eyes. Simon failed to recognize God's love at work and to live in God's love because he was really just focused on justifying his own theological position and moral status before others. Again, could there just be a little bit of Simon in all of us? Now, it's certainly not wrong to identify your needs. The centurion, the widow, this woman with a history all had real-life needs. And Simon the Pharisee also had needs, but their needs differed in their orientation. One need drove them towards God and to depend on God, saying, I have nothing but you. You're the, you're the only one I can turn to. But the other need drove them away from God and independence from God. 
What can we learn? We can miss out on God's work in our lives and in the world around us if we fail to admit that we need God. If we're feeling that God is far from us, which that happens in our lives, sometimes I think maybe God isn't as far, as away, far away from us as we might think. Consider how God just might show up in the places where the needs of others are being met. Think of that neighbor or that acquaintance. Maybe they just need a bit of support and relationship. When a person comes to your mind, don't just pass by that. Maybe even that person is coming to mind now. Oh, pull out your phone. You're okay to do that. Start a text to them and press complete or send after you're done. Maybe it's getting involved in a ministry that serves a need in our city. You know, one of our partner ministries, Capital Hope Pregnancy Center, has been using the WCF facility for a parenting class for the families that they serve since May. They've gone from a couple of people to over 25 people in December. They have needs of having meals served and people to come and help watch the babies as the parents learn how to be better parents. Or maybe it's volunteering to support the foster families in DC 127 or mentoring kids, students at risk with little lights. God is often a lot more active than we realize. And sometimes the margins of what we view in practicing our faith are the very opportunities for us to witness God's work the most. Consider where and with whom you spend most of your time during the week. Maybe you can talk to Kendra Brock or, and the Missions Commission about ways to get involved with those areas, that, areas of need that our church is connected with. As 2023 begins, Consider taking a step to schedule in serving a need, being with people on the margins of faith and of community. And you just might discover God at work in these unexpected places. Okay, so you're following along right now. Now, there's the QR code if you want to connect with the Missions Commission. Okay, you're thinking, okay, Andrew, I get it. God in the margins, God in the needs. I get it, I, I'm, but honest with you, full transparency, I'm not sh- I, have, I get it aspirationally on paper, but amongst all the demands of my life, and I'm processing my own stuff, I don't know if I have the margin to be on the margins. I'm all tapped out. Here's the thing. Luke isn't just showing us that you need more determination and gumption to be in the margins, and serve needs. That's not the point of the Christian faith. It's not just about putting yourself out there in the margins, meeting needs. What Jesus illustrates for us here is the very secret to entering into those unexpected places. It's something called love. It's love experienced by someone in the woman who we consider the least lovable in a community. It's love revealed in this woman who washes Jesus' feet. We know the name of the host of the meal. It's Simon. We don't know the name of this woman. We only know her by what she is known for, which is a woman in the town that lived a sinful life. Can you imagine being in her shoes? You're not known by your name. You're not known by your occupation. You're not known by your neighborhood. 
You're not known by what you've accomplished or what you have to offer. You're just simply the woman who lived a sinful life. Imagine looking that up on next door app. That's your profile. You don't have your name. You don't have the neighborhood. It's just sinful life, man. Yet she gives to Jesus what his host overlooks. Despite her story, she walks in with so much love, so much gratitude that she breaks into tears before she can even open the gift that she comes to give to Jesus. And those tears are coming so fast and flowing so hard that they're drenching his feet and that she doesn't even know what to do with all the tears that are on his feet that she lets down her hair to begin wiping up those tears on his feet. That's how much love she was feeling and moved at the time. And for a woman to let down her hair in public in that time would have been considered shameful. She already had a bad reputation. She's interrupting a community meal, and all this would have just added to her problems of respectability in the community. Yet none of this stops her from acting in love. Love and generosity towards Jesus. Her history, her reputation, her limitations did not stop her from loving well. Why is that? Wait. Take a look at verse 47. I tell you, her sins, many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus lifts up this woman as an example of one who loves well. Where Simon responded to the situation with judgment and stinginess, the woman responded with generous love. Now, didn't Jesus just recently have something to say about love and judgment in the previous chapter? Where did this woman learn to love so well despite all that that was stacked against her? And how do we get to love like her? See, Jesus doesn't just lift her actions up as an example of generous love. But it also, she, he lifts her up as one who knows the secret to loving well. And that secret is experiencing the forgiveness of God. Whoever has been forgiven much, loves much. The woman knew how much she needed God's love and forgiveness to change all that she thought about herself and to change all that she thought about what other people thought about her. And God's forgiveness was extended to her in this person named Jesus who sat at the table before her. What can we learn from her? The more we know God's mercy towards us in the forgiveness of our sins, the greater our capacity we will have for love. This is the unique to the Christian story. Love isn't just a feeling. It's an objective reality that we experience in the forgiveness of our sin that enables us to love beyond anything we would have capacity for. If we think that our love for God has grown cold, then maybe it's because we've come to think that God owes something to us. When in fact, God has already paid the debt for our sin. And we just have to receive that. 
We love much when we know we've been forgiven much. Perhaps science is just catching up to what Jesus knew 2,000 years ago. The Washington Post ran an article yesterday on the, on the power of forgiveness, on the benefits of forgiveness. And they quoted Karen Schwartz, who's an adolescent researcher from Johns Hopkins Medicine. And she says this, People who forgive are less anxious and angry. They have lower blood pressure, improved cholesterol levels, and a better quality of sleep. Studies also show that children who learn to forgive are better adjusted socially and have higher levels of self-esteem than those who don't. They even perform better academically. All of these physiological and psychological indicators of health reflect a capacity to live well and to love well. You can love well when you're not angry and when you're rested and when you're not anxious. Jesus teaches about the power of forgiveness way before science ever confirmed it for us now. And although, although this article is touting the benefits of interpersonal forgiveness, the good news of Jesus found in Scripture teaches us that the resource to do that well, to forgive others well, comes when we experience God's forgiveness of us. When we recognize it's simply grace that allows God to love us. Recognizing our need for God's forgiveness is the difference between this measured love of Simon the Pharisee and the unmeasured love of this woman who washes Jesus' feet. So the question for us isn't merely whether we're willing to live in the margins or to go and meet needs of others. It's not even a question of whether we will love God. The key question for us is whether we will recognize our need for God's forgiveness in our lives. And to daily come before God, saying, forgive me, God. And that's how we move in love. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Whoever has been forgiven much, loves much. God is at work in unexpected places. In the margins of society, in the places of greatest need, I hope that we are able to attend to God's work in these places. But I also hope that, most of, that, all, that we would find uh, one of the most unexpected places of all where God works. A place that is a lot closer to us than we think. And that's the place of our hearts. Because that is where we can grow into our capacity to love God and others the most. So next week, we take an interlude in this Gospel of Luke series to nurture the practice of prayer in our lives through this month, the, the four weeks of February. And I invite you to not only listen in on Sundays, but to take steps to participate in prayer in new ways. This practice of prayer is one vital way to attend to God's work in our lives and in our world. And prayer just might be one more unexpected place where we might see God at work. Amen.